Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Language Classroom, a branded podcast brought to you by Fuel Education. Fuel Education partners with school districts to fuel personalized learning and transform the education experience inside and outside the classroom. The company provides innovative solutions for pre-K through 12th grade that empower districts to implement successful online and blended learning programs. I'm your host, Andréanne King. The Language Classroom is a podcast about world languages, education, and how to design the best program and activities for your classroom. We are here to be your guide on the nitty-gritty of what makes a language classroom successful. How can you get your students to speak more, get better results? In our episode, we will take you step-by-step to create your very own language program using the latest pedagogy and design techniques available. Think of it as free professional development that you can listen to in your car or out on a walk. With each episode, you will also be able to access free downloadable content related to the topic of the episode by going to resources.fueleducation.com forward slash podcast. Each episode will come with a PowerPoint providing some visual support, explaining the concepts of the theme, and some templates and resources to help you in the creation of your language program. Today, we will discuss two fundamental practices of the classroom that go hand-in-hand with the type of instruction we have been discussing so far, task-based learning and project-based learning. Let's start by discussing task-based learning. As the name implies, task-based learning is a teaching approach which requires students to use authentic language to complete a real-life task. These types of activities used in this context replicate interactions that students can encounter in the real world, such as going to the doctor or ordering some food at the restaurant. It helps them practice, if you will, how to be in the target language once they're ready to be immersed. However, one of the major characteristics of task-based learning is that students decide how to react to the situation in front of them. They choose the linguistic tools to fit the context and the audience as opposed to more prompted scenarios where they use rehearsed language to take part in the script. Task-based learning has a clear advantage of helping students comfortably stray off the scripts that are sometimes the norm in more traditional language classrooms. Now that we understand what task-based learning is, let's discuss the specifics. According to Rod Ellis, who is considered one of the leading theorists on task-based learning, a proper task has four characteristics. Number one, a task focuses on accomplishing a clear goal. The activity presented to the students should have a clear objective. For example, if students are working on a unit about food, the focus of their task might be to find and buy the ingredients required to complete a recipe. In this case, students aren't merely looking at a recipe and highlighting the vocabulary words. They need to speak to each other, do some research, and acquire the necessary material in their simulated situation. That way, the goal up front is never for students to complete their worksheet or produce a paper or presentation, but to be able to successfully accomplish the task. The second characteristic of a task is that it should have some kind of gap. There are three kinds of gap activities, as outlined by Prabhu, the first person to truly research a task-based approach in Bangalore, India in the 80s. The first type of activity is an information gap activity. In this case, students work to exchange information with each other 
to accomplish the task. Both parties have parts of the information and need to verbalize the content to reach the goal of the task. If we go back to our example of acquiring the necessary item for a recipe in a market, one student might have a recipe book in the target language, and the other student could have a picture of the dish they're trying to make. In this case, students would work together to identify the ingredients in the picture and would then search in the recipe book to identify the recipe. After that, they would go to the simulated market to buy the ingredients. In this case, students are using authentic material, the picture of the dish and the recipe book, and work together to decipher what information is relevant for them to complete their task. Do they need all the steps on how to complete the recipe? No, they don't, but they do need to search for the ingredient list to know what to buy. The second type of activity is a reasoning gap activity. In those cases, students use the information made available to them and have to apply reasoning to transfer the information to another student. For example, going back to that same activity, students might still have the picture of the food that they need to recreate, but only have a certain amount of money to spend at the market. They then need to work together to figure out the price of the items and how much of each item they need to buy to complete their recipe. As opposed to the first type of activity we discuss, in this case, students need to apply reasoning to the content which is provided before they communicate it to their partners. What is given to them is not enough in its original form to be able to complete the task without trying to reason and answer. The last type of activity is an opinion gap activity. In this case, students are asked to articulate their opinion based on a given situation. They will decide on how to respond, which means that many students could have a very different response based on their specific opinion. In this case, there's also no right or wrong answer, but students are evaluated on how they express themselves within the task. An example of this type of situation in the context of our same example could be to ask students to research the origin of the dish that they have to prepare and discuss how the ingredients are representative of the region it comes from. In this case, a student might decide to explore the historical reason for the production of this type of food. Another might look at more geographical characteristic. And another could also talk about the social reason why people gravitate towards this dish in particular based on the culture of the region. With these three types of activities, an infinite amount of tasks can be accomplished. The level at which the students are producing should also influence the choice of task. For example, beginner learners will most be comfortable with tasks at the information gap level, as they can reinvest content given to them, whereas more advanced students will be able to better express their opinion and work at that cognitive level. Keep that in mind when selecting your task. Now, if we go back to our main characteristic of the task, number three is to ensure that students are able to select the linguistic content they need to accomplish the task. This goes back to earlier when we talked about making sure that students aren't performing a script. When presented with a task, students should be able to decide what words they want to use through the task and shouldn't be heavily prompted to use a specific structure. This can become tricky when task-based instruction is used to reinforce more complex structures, and students might rely on content they know really well, as opposed to trying out the new concept they learn. For example, if we think of our students who are now at the market talking to the shopkeeper to buy their vegetables, if they're not used to working with full sentences yet, 
they might try to complete the conversation with single words. In this case, is the student accomplishing the task? Yes. However, is that student reinforcing what you wanted them to practice by doing the task-based activity in the first place? Not exactly. So in this case, it's important to make sure that the student is working on the task-based activity at the right time of your instruction, when they're able to produce at that level you want to practice. We'll discuss this when we talk about the applied use of the practice. Finally, the last characteristic of a task, as outlined by Ellis, is to make sure that a task has a clear, defined, non-linguistic outcome. By this, Ellis means that the completion of the task should be measured by if the student has been able to complete the task, as opposed to if they have been able to successfully use the linguistic structure, which was presented in the formal instruction part of the class. With that in mind, a teacher has to always make sure that the task has a clear goal, a gap to fill, a non-linguistic outcome, and enough liberty for the student to select the linguistic tools they need to work on the task. Now that we understand how to select the task, let's talk about how to implement the technique in your classroom. A task-based approach should follow three phases, pre-task, the task, and a review. In the pre-task phase, the teacher will introduce the task to the student. Depending on where students are in their instruction, the teacher might also present some vocabulary and grammar to help them with what they will do. Now, some purists might argue that it is not true task-based learning if some of the information is front-loaded. However, in my opinion, as long as students are able to select freely the linguistic tools when in the task, I don't have a problem with including some of the content review in the pre-task. A teacher could also decide to do one task-based activity with some content review in the first phase and another one where they're not given any content at all before they start. It can help students work towards using that content more naturally the more they practice in real-life context. After the pre-task phase, students start the task. At this point, they work through the activity in small groups and the teacher observes the interactions. Ideally, the teacher should be involved as little as possible in order to let the students truly experience the task and make the choices that works best for them. Finally, once the task is completed, students come back as a class to review the content they have produced, if the task required them to produce something. If not, the teacher can have them discuss what happened in their individual groups. It is also a great time for some informal correction and review of concepts. All in all, task-based learning is a great way to reinvest the content seen in the classroom and create some unprompted interactions that replicate real-life situations. Students can make effective use of authentic material, and if you have been using them in the classroom, they can put in action their newly acquired decoding skills to look at new content. I strongly suggest that you look at your curriculum skeleton and start brainstorming a few task-based activities which could go with each of the themes you have selected. For the second part of today's podcast, we will discuss project-based learning. In some sense, project-based learning has some of the same goals and objective as task-based learning. The students use the language to accomplish a task, which is directly linked to a real-life situation. However, project-based learning applies similar concepts on a much larger scale. If you were to describe project-based learning in one sentence, 
you could say that students work together to identify and solve a real-life problem or situation. They show what they learn through the different steps of the project, all the way to the end, where they have a finished product which results from the series of tasks. Project-based learning is as much about the journey as it is about the destination. Think of it as the difference between having students plan the itinerary for a day in a city versus having them outline a series of requirements for a group of tourists, research and decide on a destination, plan the itinerary, and then present it to the prospective buyers in an engaging way. The first type of task is more of an in-and-out situation, where the students don't get that involved with the process, the product, or the story. But in project-based learning, they are part of the story and the situation and involved in every step of the way. It feels a lot more immersive and engaging than a series of disjointed activities. Project-based learning can be designed using four phases. In the first phase, students plan the project. During this time, they focus on a driving question. That question is the main focus of the project, the problem to solve, or the situation to explore, if you will. At that time, they're also introduced to the project that they will have to accomplish. This allows them to start thinking about different avenues to explore the situation, as well as a tool that they will require. For example, let's say that your project is to create a visual representation of the different countries and culture in the world which use the target language. In the first phase, students will be given the driving question and start thinking of what they need to be able to reach this objective. As you can see, we're not instructing students to create a video, a poster, a website, or a blog. We're only asking them to work on the visual representation, which can take any shape they want. In the second phase, students conduct research. At this point, students will participate in a series of classroom activities, which will allow them to become subject matter expert on the topic of their project. They should explore different aspects surrounding their central question, which will allow them to make choices on what they wish to include in their final project. For example, in this instance, students could be working on all different aspects of life in Spanish-speaking countries. Some of them might decide to focus on the history and migration of the language, while others on the cultural and social aspect of Spanish life. The important part is that each of those small activities are a stepping stone to being able to accomplish the final project. In the third phase, students develop their product. At that point, they decide on the best way to solve the driving question. They also pick all the tools necessary to work on their project with a strong emphasis on 21st century skills. This phase is the performance assessment. Teachers should keep in mind that the work on the project is also part of the assessment, not just the final product. In our example, students would be pulling together information they have learned and research. They might spend time at the computer lab or with multimedia tools to bring together all the elements of their project. Finally, in the last phase, students share their project with others. This last phase is when everything comes together and students share their response to the driving question. It is important to have them reflect on what they have produced and how it directly relates to the question they were hoping to answer. This can be done as a large group, but also in individual reflections. In this phase, external subject matter expert can also be brought into the classroom to provide some feedback to the students. For example, 
If your students worked on the history and migration of the Spanish language, the history teacher could be invited to listen in on their presentation or review the produced material. Lastly, as part of the final phase, students can also take part in a summative assessment. If the project was directly linked to clear learning objectives, they can be assessed on this content. For example, outside of the main project objective, you might have also added some linguistic goals, such as using the past tense to present a narrative, which can then be assessed in a more formal setting, even if all students worked on different projects. When creating your project for the classroom, here are a few things that you should always keep in mind. Make sure that your driving question is conducive to research and to be answered in different ways. Make sure that your students are using 21st century skills in the classroom. This means that your students are working on their learning skills, literacy skills, and life skills, all while accomplishing their project. Make sure that students have a choice and a voice. This means that the project should always be designed in a way that they decide how they wish to address it. There isn't a correct answer. Make sure that students have plenty of time to research and become experts in what they wish to present. All the smaller activities that they complete before the project are an integral part of gathering the required information. And finally, make sure that their final product is displayed or presented in a public forum. Opening up the walls of the classroom to get feedback from different sources is a great motivator to ensure that students take the exercise seriously and see the impact of their work. This means that the project shouldn't always be a presentation, but could also be posted online or on the classroom blog. On this note, we can conclude today's episode of our podcast. At this point, you should be completing your curriculum by adding some task-based activities or project. Don't forget to visit our webpage at resources.fueleducation.com forward slash podcasts to find some visual support for today's episode and a list of project ideas for the World Language Classroom. The Language Classroom is brought to you by Fuel Education. It is hosted by myself, Andréanne King. Find more information on Fuel Education and their large catalog of World Language courses at fueleducation.com.